Welcome to Mental Healthy, where we share the stories and expertise of professionals working diligently in the field of mental health. I'm your host today, Dr. Kenyon Knapp. I've got a special guest today who's, I don't want to say an old friend because that could come across the wrong way. <laughs> She's a very spry lady. We've been friends for about 15 years and we were friends as we were fellow professors in Alabama. Her name is Dr. Mary Bartlett. She's currently an associate professor of leadership at the Air University Leadership Institute at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. She has her PhD in counselor education from Auburn University, and her principal areas of research are in regards to suicide and resiliency, and she's an international speaker and published author. And I should also say she's worked with the military quite a bit. She's a mental health consultant and trainer for the Department of Defense, and she has served in that role for over 10 years. So welcome to the program today, Dr. Bartlett. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. And and we're going to be talking about a subject area you're an expert in in regards to suicide. But but I know you've said to me before that sometimes this can be a triggering topic to talk about suicide for a lot of folks. And what kind of feedback do you have on that? Well, I just I think it's always important to recognize that most people have been touched by suicide in some way in their life, whether they've known someone who's died by suicide or thought about suicide or they've lost a loved one to suicide. So I think that because this can be a provocative topic, to remind people that if this is triggering for them, that there is a national hotline, suicide prevention hotline, and they should contact or call one 800 273 8255. That certainly is an option if something is triggering for them as they listen to this podcast or to reach out to a mental health professional for some follow-up support if they need that. That's really helpful. Thanks for mentioning that. And I know you're right. This does touch most of the listeners. And our listeners are in all the different mental health disciplines. And of course, we all encounter people that have, you know, are considering suicide or extremely depressed or things like that. And I don't know if I've ever mentioned it to you, Dr. Bartlett, but, you know, my first name is Kenyon, and the man I was named after, my uncle, actually committed suicide. I don't know if I ever told you that. No, you have never told me that. Yeah, it's uh, we've been friends for so long, but we've, we're always such busy people. I, I never mentioned that. Yeah, so it's it's certainly touched my life as well. Wow. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got a rich history in regards to suicide education and helping clients with this and so forth. I don't know that I totally know your history either, and the listeners certainly don't. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on what got you interested in studying suicide to begin with? Yes, thank you. There are actually two kind of pivotal moments that led me to decide to make this my area of research and primary work. The first is not really happy. It was when I was a young therapist and I had my first client in front of me who was suicidal. And I realized in that moment that I was woefully undertrained in working with people who were having suicidal thoughts. And the tragedy of this is that I did have enough wherewithal to know, okay, I obviously have been well-trained in this and I need some help. And so I made sure the client who was in my office at the time with a family member was relatively safe so I could step out. And I went to what I considered to be or hoped would be my all-wise and knowing clinical director and figured I'd let him know and he would give me the direction that I needed. And that did not happen. And so I went back into the office and basically did the best job that I could. And in that moment, I turned this into a positive reframe of, okay, clearly didn't learn what I needed to learn through my graduate program. There was a miss on that. However, we know that in counseling grad programs, we can't learn everything, although that is an important topic. And certainly I'm an advocate to make sure that graduate programs now are including a class on it, or certainly some education in some form, but realized, okay, didn't get it. So ethically, I'm bound to try to figure this out and make sure that I get better at it. And then the next thing that sort of moved me into wanting to study suicide is when I became clinical director of an organization, I realized I need to be better trained to make sure that the people that I'm leading know how to do this. And if there is a suicide, that I know how to best support them. So those were the two kind of, you know, moments or events that led me to realize 
that this is important. Also, think about this. At the time that I started studying the suicidal mind and suicide in general and resilience, that was 15, 16 years ago. And while women were studying it, I think that it was sort of a male-dominated area at that time. And I'm pleased to say 15 years later, there are many more women studying this. But at that time, I thought, this would be good. This is a good area for me. And coincidentally, it aligned with the fact that suicide in the Air Force was increasing. And that's sort of what got me into working with the Department of Defense. I started, threw myself into it, got to learn the information, grew in it, learned a lot, and then was asked to begin teaching and advising with the Air Force, which at that point was struggling with increased numbers. The rest is history. You know, from that point, really went on to work a lot with the Department of Defense. Yeah, well, I think the public is aware of that, too. Unfortunately, all the veterans and other military service people who are committing suicide at really high rates. But you've worked for lots of different groups within the military, but recently you focused on the Air Force. And let me ask you, what drew you to working with the Air Force as compared to the other branches? Well, you're right. I served as a consultant for 10 years to the Department of Defense, and I've certainly consulted and helped with curriculum development and training for the different branches. But primarily the Air Force, because I was married to a service member in the Air Force. He served for 25 years in the Air Force. And so that was my family and moved around with the Air Force. And it became the branch that I was most familiar with. And ironically, the colleagues that I had grew up in the Air Force with them. And so when many of my colleagues reached senior leadership positions and needed information and training and consultation on suicide. It just was very natural for them to consider turning to me. And I'll never forget one person literally called me from the Pentagon, had just gotten assigned there in a leader's, resilience leadership position and said, hey, don't I have a friend who's a suicidologist? Maybe I should start with calling her and, and the rest is history. So, you know, that sort of what drew me specifically to the Air Force. Well, and of course, you have street credibility, per se, <laughs> with all the veterans, too, you know, being a military spouse and having traveled the right. world with all that. And that means so much to build that credibility and trust with the service members, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Certainly being a spouse of a military member and having lived the deployments and the TDYs and the multiple moves that we had to make absolutely gives me credibility. I see it from two different perspectives now. I also, for the past 10 years, while I was consulting with the DOD, a large part of my consultation was with mental health organizations, you know, training psychologists, going to state organizations and training, you know, the colleges and training social workers. And I really am privileged in that I've had a rich experience, vast experience and broad in terms of the audiences that I've been able to educate including counselor educators and having been a counselor educator myself prior to taking this position with Air University and the Air Force have, you know, worked with hundreds and hundreds of students that were studying to be therapists. And I hold that near and dear because I really felt it was important to give back, you know, and when I became an academic and became a counselor educator, of course, really was an advocate to ensure that at least my students were getting the education they needed to somewhat feel prepared and empowered to work with clients who might have some suicidal thinking, and also to know and to train them that it's not a matter of if you will have a client that's suicidal, but when you will, because research shows that more than 71% of counselors or mental health people will engage with a person who's having suicidal ideation at some point in their career. So to me, it's crucial to understand as a mental health person how to work effectively with people who are in that kind of psychiatric pain, a very unique, powerful, strong, painful thinking process. I say my life goal is to make sure that every counselor education program or mental health program at some point, I hope before I die, that it becomes mandated. You know, we have now we've moved in the right direction of requiring that most counselor ed programs require 
and most other mental health programs require continuing ed in ethics, which is absolutely crucial. But to me, this is why I became a therapist. To me, this is where the rubber meets the road. To me, there is no greater psychiatric emergency than when a person is making a decision about whether or not to live or die. So I think that this is crucial for people to understand. And, and we're making progress, really, over the 15 years I've been an academic and researching this topic. We've made progress. We see progress across the United States in many of the mental health programs. But there's still a lot more work to do, you know, until it's embedded in our standards, our accreditation standards as, you know, requirements, until ideally every mental health program, psychologist, psychiatrist, all the way across the spectrum have a class on working with prevention, intervention, and postvention, I will continue to advocate and work toward that goal. You mentioned a number of things that have changed, but I'm sure there's a lot that's changed over the last 15, 16 years since you've really specialized in this. Why don't you give the listeners a feel for some of the things that have changed in regards to the approach that the mental health fields have taken towards suicide? Sure. The first thing that stands out for me is 15 years ago, the number of national organizations that we had available that were providing you know, support and resources it has just grown exponentially over the past 15 years. I'm amazed and impressed and hopeful, if you will, at the number of organizations not only that offer resources, but that are working on trainings and offering trainings. And the volume of research has grown exponentially. So we know much more about suicide than we did, and we should. We've been studying it now for an additional 15 years. It certainly was being studied long before I began studying it and made it a research area. And there was lots of information before 15 years ago. But in my 15 years, I've seen those three areas of growth the most in terms of the number of organizations that are available, the resources, and the trainings that are available, not just for mental health people, but for the general public, because this is a public health issue. You know, and we know that it's not necessarily the mental health person that's going to put eyes on someone who might be struggling with this first. It's probably going to be a family member, a loved one, a supervisor, a pastor, someone of that sort, which hopefully will lead them to getting the kind of strategic help that they need, the mental health that they need. However, we know that families are crucial and getting messaging and training to them, first responder training is important. And those are the types of things I've seen grow in the past, you know, nearly two decades. It's encouraging. I'm glad to hear that. Let's shift in our conversation a little bit to more of the therapeutic side of how you help somebody with this, or maybe what the client is thinking of. The listeners of this program are a combination of graduate students and mental health professionals around the country. So let's talk about a client who's considering suicide. What are some of the things that lead a person to think about suicide? How do they get to that spot? Right. Yes. Well, there are different theories that explain suicide, and the theoretical approach that I teach from and use is by Dr. Thomas Joyner. He's one of the leading suicidologists in the country right now, and he actually identifies that there are three primary components that might lead a person to suicide. And the reason I like his theoretical approach is because I have seen it through most of my work. It's like, yes, I see this unfolding right in front of me. And so he proposes that there are three components that might lead a person to die by suicide. And these do not come in a sequential order. They can come at any time, which makes it a bit more tricky. But when a person might feel a sense of burdensomeness or what we call psych ache, most people in the sense of burdensomeness might feel psychological pain because of their burden. And so lacking a place or a person or sense of safety to discuss and really unload their burden might lead a person to feel so overwhelmed that suicide might be the best option. The second component that a person typically feels that may lead them to that outcome is what he calls thwarted belongingness or disconnection. Many clients refer to it as disconnection. I don't feel connected to anything. And that makes sense. 
if you're feeling burdened by many life events or things going on in your life, you tend to disconnect from people and those organizations. So you might disconnect if you're feeling burdened and not want to share it. Disconnect from your social environment and from your family members and from even your spiritual area in your life. And the third component is what we call acquired capacity or developing a sense of fearlessness for death. And certainly when we are able to identify people who have that burdensomeness or the psychological pain and a sense of disconnection, we have a better chance to work with them if they're identified and are willing to talk about it. We have a better chance of getting them to step back from dying by suicide. But when they have developed that acquired capacity and have joined with those other two components, that's when we have usually the need for a medical intervention. I teach a class on understanding the suicidal mind, and I think the most important part of this answer, aside from theory, is really just understanding that it is psychological pain that someone comes to, where they truly have go into what we call constricted thinking and have at that point ruled out other options for how to reduce their pain. And so a lot of research shows, and certainly I don't want to rely only on the research, but my living examples of hundreds of clients that I've worked with that are experiencing that psychological pain that has gripped them so closely that they don't think they can go on. They do not see the possibility of that pain ever going away. And that is sort of, to me, the underpinning and strong part that leads a person to actually believe and come to know, you know, in their mind that dying is easier than getting up and living the next day. And so the work of mental health providers and family members, too, is to help this person understand that in this moment when those three things are converging, that they're not seeing clearly, and that now that they've told their story, we can work together to hopefully find ways to reduce that psychological pain, and if in doing so, might pave the way for them to not die by suicide and that they can tolerate living. So that's sort of the approach that I teach from is the Dr. Thomas Joyner's approach, and of course, there are other aspects, you know, different approaches, and I think he pulls from many of them, but that's the easiest way to describe how does a fairly rational person reach a place of wanting to die. And I think another important aspect is to remember that there's no one thing that leads a person to that decision of suicide. Generally, it's a compilation of things that have led to their burden that seem impossible to get through or past. I want to make sure I mention that because to me, in my experience, there's usually a final straw, if you will, that breaks the camel's back. And there is a moment of great impulsivity to eliminate that pain because it becomes unbearable. But it's important to understand that when we do a psychological autopsy following a suicide where we try to unfold what really transpired and led this person to this outcome, we discover more often than not, and most times, that there were multiple factors, social, economical, familial factors that led to that outcome. Yeah, that's an interesting term you just used there, psychological autopsy. I guess that's where you go back and you look for these factors that you just described, those three things, the burdensomeness, disconnection, and fearlessness for death? Well, and even beyond that, okay. psychological autopsy, yeah, is beyond that. It's very comprehensive. It's much more expansive and inclusive. It really is when suicidologists will look at this, and the best case I can give you is in the Air Force, which, of course, I work for right now, there are people that are trained to do psychological autopsies that gather all this information. What were the many, many things that may have led to it? Now, the reason, the value, I think, part of the value of doing a psychological autopsy is that it helps us understand what were the things that were happening so that we might be able to better train therapists and provide better resources 
do better research or focus research in particular areas, but to know how to help families and what elements might stress someone out so that we can direct our attention and support to them. So there's multiple value in doing a psychological autopsy. It leads to, again, doing the right research, focusing on identifying potential risk factors and being able to support people through that and lead them again to a different outcome. So a psychological autopsy, I think, is very crucial and yields a lot of good information. Probably gives some sense of context or maybe understanding for the loved ones of the person that died, like if they can try to connect the dots as to why the person died. Because I know whenever something painful happens to people, they always ask why, 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 why. And I guess the autopsy might help the family members or or loved ones. Yes, it certainly does. You're absolutely right. That is another aspect of it. Unfortunately, there is no psychological autopsy on every suicide. That's actually what makes the Department of Defense a little bit unique. A psychological autopsy is conducted on every suicide, at least in the Air Force, but I believe across the Department of Defense, as opposed to the civilian sector, where I don't know that a psychological autopsy is completed on everyone. And Even when they're done, some of that information is not necessarily shared with families. But you are absolutely right. This is one of the long-term goals of helping a survivor of suicide, which is coming to terms with the unknown. There's still so much research we have to do, in particular, the last hour leading up to a person dying by suicide. What was really going on? You know, what was happening and understanding that? And that's what makes the aftermath of a suicide, if you will, the post-invention component, all the things that a family or organization or community will go through in the healing following a suicide and losing a loved one or a cherished friend is so difficult because people want to know why. And we like to live in a black and white world. And we don't. And I think suicide, unlike death experiences like cancer or accidental death, which you know can be, of course, very painful, no one is prepared for a suicide. And so it leaves a lot of holes. And part of the goal in helping a survivor of suicide is to move away from the endless search of why and come to terms with the healing process and how to move forward and with any grief process, understand this part of their life to move forward, which is a very difficult thing because you are trying to search for an answer. You're making me think of so many things as you're bringing all this up. Like when you mentioned, and there's certain words that jumped out at me, the first of Dr. Joyner's points about burdensomeness, a sense of that. I know a lot of mental health professionals get a little bit scared of suicide issues because, you know, we don't want to have one of our clients or patients commit suicide. We think, well, did I do something wrong or something like that? So a lot of times people avoid it. But I want to share a rationale with the listeners of, I've got a lot of different kinds of listeners, but some of them are faith-based. And for those who are Christians, in the Bible, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so your first point about Dr. Joyner is people have a sense of burdensomeness. And when we bear each other's burdens, when you share your struggle with somebody else, it's taking a lot of weight off you. But my experience when I've seen people share is that they might feel like they're taking 50 pounds off their back by sharing with me. But for me, it's only like 10 pounds on me. (laughs) I care and it takes it off them. But when we share our burdens, it really divides the burdens. You know, it makes it easier to deal with. So I I just wanted to share that because, you know, the people of faith certainly have a rationale for helping people who are struggling with suicide. I actually want to follow up on that. Yeah, sure. I'm glad that you mentioned the spiritual component because we know that protective factors for many people is having a spiritual connection. Again, not necessarily a religious connection, but some sort of spiritual domain to their life. And that can actually strengthen them and protect them. And I really believe that we don't talk about spirituality enough. Again, now, when you're a therapist, you have to be very careful about not imposing your spiritual or religious beliefs or values onto a person who's struggling with thoughts of suicide. That's really critical. However, I think we undermine 
the value of exploring with a person what their protective factors are and building that into the discussion to grow their hope. And if spirituality is one of them, then we need to go there. And I think because while we have obviously many, many people that practice mental health from a spiritual perspective, we have many therapists that don't. And I think that we just don't talk about it enough, perhaps, or encourage mental health people to really build on that aspect as a protective factor and explore it. Because certainly, to me, it makes sense. We're talking about a person who's struggling with their existential existence. Do I belong here? Should I belong here? Would my family be better off without me? What would it be like to die? And I think that I would like to move in the direction of helping people have permission, if you will, to gently, and you have to do it well. You have to know how to do it. That's why education is so important to know how do I explore that very sensitive domain with someone without imposing my own values, but recognizing that spirituality can be a protective factor. We certainly try to train students here at Liberty how to do that, but I know it varies across the country. And so we're grateful that there's people like you out there trying to train people about protective factors. And that actually sort of leads into my next question. What do mental health workers need to know about working with people who are having suicidal thoughts? What they need to know is that many people have ideation and never attempt. And they all, I would also want them to know that people who attempt suicide, we know research shows many and most do not go on to die by suicide. So just because you have the thought doesn't mean the person is going to die by suicide and those who attempt may not go on to die by suicide. The important thing is to encourage mental health members to early in the work with someone explore those thoughts, to know if they need to fold them into the therapy. And also, even if a client doesn't initially present with suicidal thoughts, therapy in and of itself can conjure up and trigger and go in many directions that we can't foresee. And so to continually monitor and inquire about any triggers or thoughts about suicide. This is not a once and done assessment. Part of the assessment of suicidality is across the spectrum of the relationship as long as you are in therapy with someone. So that's the first thing. And to bear in mind, Kenyon, there are so many myths about suicide and many have been debunked. And unfortunately, we need to help the public know and understand as well as our own mental health organizations and providers know that many of the myths that are out there, unfortunately still out there, we need to talk about and educate people on. For example, one of them being, if we talk about suicide, that it puts the idea in their head. I mean, that is just not true. And in fact, for many, many years, research has indicated the exact opposite. In fact, if we create an environment of trust and safety, the person may then discuss these thoughts that quite frankly, they might be afraid of. And in doing so, in sharing their thoughts and putting it out into the universe and talking about these emotions, this burden, you know, this disconnection, it actually reduces the likelihood that a person will die by suicide. The challenge, however, is in getting a person, to me, to share some dark part and place, because oftentimes people want to avoid going there, of course, because it's painful, But there's also can be a lot of shame in sharing that and feeling like you are weak. And the message I know that the general public, that the national organizations are trying to communicate to people who might be thinking about suicide or struggling with depression and anxiety. And certainly the message across the Department of Defense is that there is strength and seeking help is a good thing, not a bad thing. And if we can get people to discuss it early enough in their trajectory, chances are we can help them never reach out and attempt a suicide. So again, I think for the mental health providers, more specific to your question is to recognize that assessing it throughout their work, knowing that it can be triggered at any time, no one is immune to thoughts about suicide. And some research indicates that most people will think about suicide at some point in their life 
even if it's just a millisecond. And that's where the resilience component comes in, is that if we can work toward a culture of care and wellness in our family, in our religious organization, in our work environment, if we can work toward building a culture of care and resilience where we're teaching people we bend, we just don't want people to break. And what are the things that we can do to help our children learn that adversity happens and we can bend back up? It doesn't have to break us. Building that into our relationships with our significant others and, again, all the relationships in the areas of our life, if we fortify that and emphasize that message that we can get through this, tragedy happens, people can survive it, sometimes not alone. Sometimes, like you said, you were spot on. You have to share that burden in order to get past it. I think those are some of the messages I would share with mental health providers. That's helpful. That's good. Now, you touched on another thing. You keep saying things that make me jump to a next thought. <laughs> you, you mentioned some of the myths that people have, like if they talk about it, it's going to cause people to do it. I'm assuming those myths lead to intervention errors by practitioners as well. So, so let's talk about what are some of the common intervention errors that, you know, well-intentioned, nice therapists, you know, end up messing up? Like, what do they mess up with when they're trying to help someone with, who's suicidal? Yes. And you know, what's interesting about looking at the common intervention errors is that you can flip them. And if you avoid those areas, that is what makes you a better practitioner to work with people who might be struggling with suicidal thoughts. And so some of the common intervention errors are, and there are five primary. First is the mismanagement of personal reactions. And it's interesting to me because you asked me much earlier, you know, what are we doing well? What progress have we made? And we are making progress, but one of the areas that I think we need to make more progress in is in the education or in educating providers and families, learning how to manage their emotions. I don't think we spend enough time on that. Now, the American Association of Suicidology has a day-long, two-day-long class in which they focus several hours with practitioners who take this on that aspect alone, learning to manage your own reactions, because we know that the common emotions that a practitioner will feel when they have a person in front of them who's saying, yes, I'm thinking about dying by suicide or killing myself, are anger, anxiety. And if you're not aware of what you're feeling, it could potentially block you from doing the assessment that you need to do. If you are recovering from your own personal loss, your brother has died by suicide, and you are still in pain over that experience, it might hold you back from asking the questions that you need to ask in order to get that person the best help. So the first common intervention error is a mismanagement of your own personal reactions and being really what I say, emotionally intelligent. Be aware of what you're feeling so you can do the right stuff. The second common error is not doing an adequate assessment, so inadequate assessment. I teach an entire class on just assessment. You know, how do we do an assessment? What are the components of a successful or comprehensive assessment that might best protect a person from going down the lane of thinking about suicide or dying by suicide? And an assessment has many components to it. So I, I don't know that we have time to go into how do you do an adequate assessment, but that's a second common intervention error. The third is poor treatment planning, that you might do a good comprehensive assessment but once you have the information, need to use it to guide your planning and care of that person. And sometimes providers don't do that very effectively. The fourth intervention error that we know about is inappropriate management of care. That you might manage your reactions. You might do an adequate assessment. You might do very good planning, but you actually don't manage the planning well. You don't follow through with the management of the care. And one of the most common errors that I see is therapists doing a good job assessing the suicidality, noting that it's there, and then maybe noting it in their case notes two or three times more, and then it's like it drops off and it goes away. So there's a whole segment on helping providers know how to do the management and the documentation of working with someone in the suicide thinking. And then the fifth is a failure to document. You know, that leads me right into the documentation. So what's unfortunate is that if a therapist does 
good management of personal reactions, a good assessment, good treatment planning, good management of the care, but fails to document that process, that can certainly have very bad outcomes. You know, and so I said, if you flip those around, if you do those five things well, then you can probably know that you're doing a fairly good job in the work that you're providing. And this is the thing, it's aspirational. None of, I don't know anyone who does well at all, you know, superior in all five areas. This is a growth process. This is a get as much education as you can in each of those so that you become more proficient and a better provider. Let me jump back to something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned that when you work with the people in the military, you need to focus on prevention, intervention, and postvention. Let's talk about that last point there a little bit. <laughs> what is postvention and what, is, what does that look like? Hey, yes, thank you. Postvention is a term that was coined in the field of suicidology by its founder, actually, the American Association of Suicidology, Ed Schneidman. It's not a made-up word. Dr. Bartlett did not just create this word. It's been around for a long time. And what it is is all the actions that occur after a suicide to rebuild the community and heal the survivors. That's what postvention is. And it's only emerging more recently, certainly for the Air Force, in the last four years, they've begun to look at postvention and understand that good postvention becomes effective prevention. And what I would like to share is that there are many things that therapists can do in the postvention phase that might actually prevent another suicide or the family member from also dying by suicide, which is the contagion effect. There are strategic goals that can be implemented that might reduce the likelihood of someone else in the community dying by suicide. But there's a whole process to how do we take care of our survivors? What are the mental health goals we want to help them reach so that they recover? And there are three primary goals to good postvention. The first is helping the community develop a healthy healing process. The second is to help to reduce contagion within the community. And the third is getting a person who is identified in that postvention process hurting so badly that they too might be thinking about suicide to the right resources. So I always say this in my briefings on postvention. A lot of people think this is shoot from the hip willy-nilly. It isn't. There's a whole process to it. And I would say, because your larger audience is, I think, going to be mental health providers, it's important for the colleges that are teaching prevention and intervention or any type of training to soon-to-be professionals to cover postvention because when a therapist loses a client to suicide, I simply, and I'm biased, I recognize that, but I simply cannot think of a more traumatizing experience. Of course, because I have worked for so many years with chronically suicidal clients, have lost clients to suicide, and having worked in the Department of Defense for so long, I have lost airmen and soldiers and Marines and the like to suicide. For those of the listeners out there, they can testify to the fact that losing a client to suicide has a profound impact on not just who you are and how you practice from that point on as a therapist, but who you are as a person. And so we need to do a much better job of supporting clinical survivors of suicide, as well as family members who lose a loved one to suicide, with the goal being to potentially prevent another one. You're bringing up a lot of good points you know, about things we can do as individuals, but let's expand a little bit. Let's think about this in a little bit more of an advocacy kind of way maybe for a second. I know you and I have both been counselor educators for a while, so let's talk about the counselor education field for a second. What changes would you like to see in the counselor education field in regards to the way they approach suicide, whether it be training or intervention or whatever? What are some of the changes you'd like to see? Sure. The first is really basic, to help educators become less fearful of suicide. It is fear-provoking. I mean, when you are sitting there and you have the responsibility of a person, you know, influencing the decision of whether or not they might live or die, that's an ominous position to be in. So the first is to help them get past the fear. The second is for the programs to 
about it, to teach it, to actually build it into the curriculum. We have to get that done as a basic, a foundational thing. To my knowledge, you know, many, many programs out there, whether you're psychiatry, psychology, social work, clinical counseling, until we build that in as a requirement, because again, we know it's not a matter of if you're going to have a client who's thinking about suicide. So to me, this is how I describe it. It's the equivalent of needing brain surgery and getting a surgeon, a brain surgeon, who's only had three hours of training. We can do better than that. So my vision, my advocacy, what I'd like to see change is that every clinical program, whatever kind of clinical program it is, has a requirement to teach a semester-long class on working with suicidal clients. Not an optional, not an elective, but look, you're going to be dealing with this, and we are remiss if we don't teach you how to do this and recognize that there are three components. We can't just teach you prevention and intervention. We also have to teach you postvention. And then the next part of that, I mean, there are so many things I wish for if I had a magic wand. The next thing I would wish for is that we bring into that training that deeper focus, not only explaining the theories that might lead a person to it, but really honing in on the pain, the psychological pain, and helping therapists really understand, particularly, you know, because we teach empathy, but empathy doesn't mean that you've gone through the experience. So we have lots of providers that have not thought about suicide. Many have, actually. But for those who haven't, people or family members who haven't, helping them to understand, like you said much earlier, how does a person get there? You know, how does a person get to that place of profound sadness? So I think doing a better job of folding into any training, understanding grief better, you know, understanding, I would submit, spirituality better, understanding resilience more understanding wellness overall, and self-care. Because this is, in my opinion, one of the hardest things for therapists to move past. And in order for us to preserve the great training that a person and the service that a person has given to many, many clients after they experience a suicide, I would like to see people graduate from programs understanding that they too can heal because they will be impacted. So I would say first, make it a requirement, build it into any mental health program across the spectrum. Second, work on the personal reactions, help therapists to understand what their personal reactions might be. And then third, help them make sure that you include all components, prevention, intervention, and postvention. And then lastly, learn that grief process that accompanies suicidal thinking. Those are the things I would like to see change in the field of counselor education, that it's actually in order to get relicensed, you have to have CEUs, additional CEUs past your graduate training. So not only my goal would be to get it into all the graduate training, but that beyond that, in order to relicense, you need to have continuing edit on it. And the reason for that is because we are continuing, and I know this is true for many different things, but addictions and racial disparity and diversity. I mean, we learn new things and we do research all the time and we learn new things about them, but those issues aren't suicide. They aren't about whether or not a person lives or dies. And so I think that continuing education, because this field is constantly changing, we have to, and this is the gatekeeping part, make sure therapists are staying current in evidence-based information and best practice. This is not something we can say you can do willy-nilly. We need to make sure that people are being updated on how to intervene appropriately. I know right now in the field, all the different mental health fields, there's a big focus on crisis and trauma work. There's a like an expectation that you're going to deal with suicide like in that category per se. But right. I do know in some programs, you know, suicide gets real quick. They sort of cover it, but they don't yeah. necessarily address it with the level of intensity and information that's needed. Right. Hopefully that'll improve. And Kenyon, right. yeah. you're right. That was a pivotal point in many mental health programs when crisis was emphasized in accreditation standards. You must have a crisis class, but again, doesn't necessarily define, and I may not know the newest accreditation standards for some organizations, but unless it specifies, you know, something on suicide, 
you can sort of fold into that class what you want, and you're right. Research shows that the average practitioner gets less than four hours of training in working with suicide. I think we're making significant progress, and many programs are. However, we still need to work on that. It's a gap area. Well, I tell you, I want to be respectful of your time, so let me just squeeze in one last question if I could. Now, you mentioned earlier that you've experienced your clients have, some have died by suicide. Let me ask you, let's say you're talking to someone right now in our listening audience. What advice would you give professional out there, mental health professional who experiences losing a client? What are some of the things maybe you've been through that might help somebody out there? The first thing is that to anticipate and understand that it's very natural to go through a myriad of feelings. There is no feeling that you could be experiencing as a result of this that I would consider inappropriate, okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is you might think that you can get past this without getting additional support, but I do not find that to be the reality. I think that any therapist who loses a client to suicide needs to have not only more intensive supervision to help them rebuild and kind of reground themselves, but also probably needs to seek out their own counseling support to process through, again, what I consider one of the most intense experiences of a provider. The third thing is to remember that this doesn't go away overnight. Like I said earlier, it's going to impact you for the rest of your life. And also to know that even with the right supports and the right counseling, this will be a part of your practice. And so you're going to think about this probably for the rest of your life, and that's not uncommon. And again, I'm trenching the study and the teaching of suicide prevention every day, so probably more likely that I would think about my clients, but there really isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about particular clients or all the clients I've had that have died by suicide. So to know that, you know, you got to process through it in a way to build that into, and I say, grow from the experience. Once you can get past the immediate grief and the feelings of responsibility, guilt, you know, or shame, again, the myriad of feelings that a therapist might have to somehow, we say it, you know, through conflict comes growth. And so to grow from that process and build in better practices we know that, unfortunately, a lot of people who experience losing a client to suicide who are actually in a graduate program choose to drop out. That's the advice I would give someone. I thought, man, I've been studying suicide for many years, and I'm, you know, I can handle this. And as I mentioned, a turning point for me in terms of why I would study suicide was when I became a clinical director. And I remember thinking, you know, as I said earlier, I want to make sure that I'm prepared to help the people that I need to take care of. And every year at the American Association of Suicidology Conference, they have a meeting group for clinical survivors of suicide. And certainly the support for clinical survivors extends way beyond just one conference. They have support groups that you can participate in, you know, well beyond the conference now. But I went to that meeting. And when it came to me to say, hey, what brings you here? And this was years after my first suicide experience. I burst into tears and sobbed uncontrollably and, and unbeknownst to me, not, I was not prepared for that for, I'd say, five minutes. And, you know, fortunately, I was in the presence of therapists, and so they were very kind and graceful. And afterward, I heard myself say, I am here because I need to get my stuff in order so that if this happens to those that I'm leading, those that I'm supervising, I can help them the right way. That was very powerful moment for me. Please, you're not an island and you don't need to be an island. If you experience losing a client to suicide, just know that there are support groups and there's so much information that's available to you. You're not alone. Just like the whole concept of suicide, unburdening can help you become a better therapist. That's great. That's such a good note to end on. <laughs> you mentioned so many different resources and all. Let me pause one second here. You mentioned some great resources, but if the people listening go, man, you know, you're an expert on this, what are some of the most recommended resources you would give? It could be a website or a book. You right. do a lot of training yourself and you speak all around the country, but they obviously, you know, can't hit you up for all this yourself. Where would you recommend people go to learn a little bit more? 
Sure. Some of my favorite organizations and websites, first is the American Association of Suicidology, suicidology.org. Lots of valuable information. That's my go-to. Then I would recommend the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Then I would recommend, I'm trying to think of, oh, the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, SPRC, is another valuable organization. And I I cringe to think that I'm going to fail to mention some (laughs) really important ones, so I ask for forgiveness. But I also want to mention, for those who are working with military members, the organization TAPS, T-A-P-S, that is an organization that works primarily on suicide with family survivors and prevention. And so I would certainly encourage you to look at that information as well. Those are the four, the three, you know, three civilian organizations, top civilian organizations that I turn to, and then one military organization. And I'll leave you with that. But please know, if you Google suicide resources, ooh, you're going to two words, you're going to get a lot of direction in where to go and how to get. In fact, you're going to have to sort through a, a lot of resources. If I may, one more thing I would just like to add to the end here is one of the reasons I've prevailed, if you will, in this area is that quite naturally, I think I have a very optimistic personality, but what feeds into it is the hopefulness that I feel. That over 15 years, while sometimes this might take, and for those of you who have been practicing 30, 40 years, you know, we learn and we grow, and I just, I look and I, I look at how far we've come, and I know that there are good things that we can teach each other to bring hope to people. And this is my final message, to remember whether you're a practitioner, a family member, a spiritual advisor, a coach, or whatever, you are hope brokers, hope brokers. And when we give people hope, there's a greater likelihood that they're not going to want to die. And when people lose hope is what might move them in that direction. And so build into your life the understanding that living a hopeful life and building a hopeful life and helping others to find hope is probably one of the best prevention measures we have. Absolutely. I couldn't say it any better than that. So that's excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Bartlett. We really appreciate it. And once again, listeners, this is Dr. Mary Bartlett specializing in suicidology and how to help people with that. Thank you for being on the program today, Mary. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And so listeners, if you like this, and I know you've learned a lot today, please click like and subscribe to the program and get it every other week. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Healthy. Please be sure to subscribe for more episodes and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. We hope you join us next time for more on Mental Healthy. Music for this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons by Excel Music Publishing at freemusicpublicdomain.com.